The Republican justices on the Ohio Supreme Court have declined to appear before the editorial board of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, partly because of transcripts of this podcast and partly because of our editorials. They say they don't think they'll get a fair shake. The truth is, they've received a fair shake. They've just abandoned their duties to the Constitution in favor of their party. And in Pat DeWine's case, he's abandoned the principles of his judicial canons to sit on a case involving his father. I don't think it's that they don't think they'll get a fair shake. I think they really don't have answers for the indefensible, but they will not be there when comes endorsement time. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Layla, a big congratulations. You delivered the biggest public service project we've done in years. It's just published on Cleveland.com. It's called Cleveland's Promise. We'll be talking about it tomorrow, but this is a good day. Yes, thanks so much. Yeah, Hannah Drown and Cameron Fields have uh, brought it across the finish line, and but you know we've only we're we've only just begun, and it is a long, long. This is a marathon, not a sprint, and we have only started. And um, it's it's an exciting day for them. I just sent them a note telling them how proud I am, and um, I'm excited. It's great. Yeah. This is great stuff. It's it's published now. When you're listening to this as we record, it's just gone live. There are two stories today. There'll be one the rest of the week, then one each day next week, and then twice a week. We'll be talking about it tomorrow. We got other stuff to talk about today. Lee Weingart and Chris Ronane sat down with our editorial board last week in the 90-minute conversation provided voters with clear choices between the two candidates from their philosophy about government to their specific plans. They are quite different. Layla, what are the highlights as reported by Courtney Astolfi over the weekend? Well, we've got these two dramatically different candidates, of course, who, you know, Chris Ronane, the Democrat who says his decades of experience in, in the local institutions, including Cleveland City Hall and University Circle Inc. and all these other boards, make him the perfect choice to to make the reformed county government live up to its promise. And then you've got outsider Lee Weingart, this longtime lobbyist and, and a former county commissioner in the 90s. And he really relishes the fact that he has less support from the mayors than his opponent because he says that he is the the taxpayer's preferred candidate here. But perhaps the only similarity between their viewpoints is that they both are very disdainful of the county's decisions regarding the Global Center renovations and the new jail. And they've both pledged, at least on the jail, to undo that decision once they take office. But beyond that, they are as different as night and day. Uh, you know, as as in, for example, regionalism. You know, Weingart promoted his big idea for a centralized income tax collection and distribution system that would impose a flat tax rate for the region and eliminate the double taxation that people experience when they work in one city and live in another. And he views that as this major step in the direction of regionalism. But Ronane really disliked this plan and argued that the devil's in the details, that some people are likely going to end up paying higher taxes. And he said he plans on pursuing regionalism through other means like waterfront planning, airport operations and land use and things like that. Well, well hold, hold on on that, though. I mean, the, the Lee Weingart plan for uniform municipal income tax is a great idea. It, it's, it's one that needs to be mashed together. But what I was surprised about is Chris Ronane had a fundamental misunderstanding of it because we, he was talking about, I think, Westlake, which has right. a lower, has like a, 
I think, a 2% tax rate. And if the countywide tax rate was 2.25, he was arguing this would be an increase for people of Westlake. And Weingart came back and said, no, 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 but they're working in Cleveland. They're paying two and a half percent. And and Chris was really confused because he's saying, yeah, but they give a complete discount and their rate is one and a half percent. He just didn't get it. This mm-hmm. for most people would be a tax cut. I mean, the way this would work out, we have to figure out all the the different pieces and parts, but Chris didn't understand it. I'm a little bit surprised he doesn't embrace it because pretty much everybody else thinks this is a great idea. Chris, on the other hand, was was talking about his plan to to get the hospitals to pay yeah. um, payments in lieu of taxes. And Weingart was what we got all over him because he tried to portray that as a tax. And in no definition is that a tax. And Weingart wouldn't own that he was wrong on that. That's right. I mean, yeah, that's Ronin's big idea. That's his his the payment in lieu of taxes would would funnel into this community health equity fund, 35% of what the hospitals would pay if they were if they were a tax paying entity, and he estimates it would be about $39 million and the fund would cover things like transportation to medical appointments and wellness programs and things like that for the community. And Weingart just hates it and he said you know, Ronain rolled this idea out without ever checking in with hospitals. And he said that the hospitals do enough charity work. And yeah, that really leads us to that topic of Weingart's sort of disingenuous moments. He kept he kept referring to that plan as a as a tax on hospitals when it when it certainly is not a tax. It's not forced upon them. It's more or less that you know, being, you know, you're being a good citizen if you're a hospital that's paying into this, this sort of fund. Um, it's, it's not well, a tax. At one point he's, <laughs> and at one point he said, you know, they're paying it involuntarily. That's what makes it a tax. It's not involuntary. Right. Chris would exactly. negotiate with it. So it would be voluntary. It is, I look, we, we did jump on Weingart because of the misstatements he's making. He's done push polls where he's saying, if you knew Chris Ronane was going to increase a $40 million tax to pay for healthcare, what would you think of him? Which is bogus. He has Mm -hmm. said Mm -hmm. that Chris built the university circle budget based on tickets to black people, but he didn't do his homework because that money from the tickets doesn't go to university circle. It goes to the city of Cleveland and we confronted him with it. And he would not show the humility to admit he was wrong which was disturbing. Right. And, you know, he also had been pitching for months uh, this idea to, to freeze property taxes for seniors without a notion that he couldn't really legally do it. And by the time we eventually you know, nailed that down in a story, he had moved on to plan B of how to do it and then plan C of how to do it, which eventually involved recruiting a state legislator to introduce some legislation on his behalf to try to do it. And, you know, we brought that up and you know, he he brought us some half-baked tip about financial mismanagement of University Circle under Ronane, and and that really wasn't true either. And um, you know, he he also claimed he essentially single-handedly brought the Cleveland Browns back to Cleveland by campaigning for the creation of the syntax. And and uh, former Mayor Mike White told Ronane that that Lee was barely involved in that, and so. All of these things kind of, you know, these chickens came home to roost during our interview with him. And uh, although I I do have to say that that we do have articles in our archives that show Weingart was very active in getting that tax passed and got some kudos for it. Maybe Mm -hmm. Mike White wasn't involved in the in the tax part. Mike White does get the credit for bringing the Browns back. But there is 
that there is some truth to what Weingart said. We also hit up Chris and said, yeah. you have never satisfactorily explained why you didn't act on the, the, the fact that the police department that you oversaw was giving tickets to 90% black people. That, right. That, and then when you found out about it, it only got worse. Yeah, he still didn't quite have a great answer to to why he didn't do enough to fix the problems of what appeared to be racial profiling among the police and university circle that were identified by that ProPublica story. And uh, in fact, it like you said, it just did seem that the problem grew worse. He did point to a couple things that that he did try to do. Uh, but, you know, Lee Weingart jumped all over that and said, you know, you said you were going to set up this review board and the, uh, you had the first meeting of that review board on the day you left University Circle. And uh, so, you know, he had his own weakness there. That was his weak spot in in the interview for sure. OK, Lisa, you were in part of that interview. And of course, over the weekend, the editorial board endorsed Chris Ronane. We don't really get into what the vote was, but I will say it was close. It was a pretty, pretty spirited debate over which candidate to endorse, right? It was. We actually had to have a tiebreaker. And it was interesting because a couple of board members went in saying they were going to endorse Weingart. And then after it was over, they totally changed their minds. So there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of discussion amongst the board after we ended the meeting. And yeah, this was one of the tougher endorsements I've been in. Usually it's pretty clear cut and it's usually pretty close to unanimous, but we were split right down the middle. It was a great uh, endorsement session. I mean, you really did get a sense of who these guys are and how they're different. They engaged in good faith. They engaged in a big way, but they, they came to it in good faith to make their cases. They both showed pros. They both showed cons. It's uh, posted on cleveland.com. I suggest anybody who's not sure who they're voting for, give it a watch. It's Today in Ohio. I keep hearing from people who say their circle of contacts, sometimes it's young women, sometimes it's seniors, other times it's healthcare workers, are furious about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and are going to the polls to make their voices heard. That raises the question about how much abortion might play into the tight race to replace Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. Andrew Tobias did some digging. Lisa, what did he find? Yeah, and he actually took a look at this issue from several different perspectives. So I'm going to try and break it down along those lines. So first of all, he talked to party operatives and advocates about, you know, the Dobbs decision and how it will, you know, affect the November elections. So uh, Katie Paris of Red Wine and Blue, which is a Democratic advocacy group here in Ohio, said she said this will make races more competitive. And she says, you know, now voters can draw a hard line between who they vote for and how it impacts their life with this Dobbs decision. She also says that, you know, voters may be buoyed by that uh, election in Kansas and also a New York congressional race where, in, uh, you know, a pro-abortion, or pro-abortion candidate won. On the other hand, the uh, Republicans are saying, well, we're focusing on the economy and inflation and public safety and increasingly immigration, if, as we've seen in recent weeks. But... Governor Mike DeWine and other GOP candidates here and nationally have removed abortion content from their websites, and they're not really talking about it on the campaign trail. So they see that as a sensitive issue. Uh, Tobias talked to an anonymous GOP operative. He says abortion will maybe cost them one and a half to two percentage points in the election. He said that it may have an impact in the suburbs, but he thinks statewide that advantage will wash out. 
Then he talked to candidates. So he talked to Nan Whaley, you know, the gubernatorial Democratic challenger. And she said it's a key issue in her campaign. She just started TV attack ads, uh, you know, on DeWine and his support, you know, for anti-abortion and and the fetal heartbeat law, bringing up the 10-year-old that had to go to Indiana to get an abortion. She says, does it help her campaign? Yes. Is she happy about it? No, but she's going to, you know, work that line. DeWine says he's just going to talk about economics, especially Intel and all the repercussions from building that plant. He says that he will not say what he's going to do after the election about abortion. So in his mind, he's already won the race. (laughs) You know, I I get the feeling what I what I feel like is like we missed the Trump support in 2016. I feel like people might be missing the abortion issue and how powerful it's going to be. Remember, nobody really had tapped into the Trump voter in Ohio. So when he won, we were all scratching our heads saying, how did we miss that? And we don't want to miss it again. And polls are so useless that it's hard to to know But man, there are pockets and pockets and pockets of women who are really angry about this. And it it bubbles up in the subtext account I get or sometimes in email people saying, yeah, my group that, that they're going to the polls just for this. They are furious about how a bunch of men have taken away women's control over their bodies and they're not going to stand for it. And it, it, it you just wonder are all the political pollsters and everybody else who think they know everything missing this trend? I mean, people ignore women at their peril all the time, but that one to two percent doesn't sound right to me based on what I'm hearing from people bubbling up. Yeah. And, you know, and Andrew also took a look at some polls, although we know how polls can be very, you know, unreliable, but he talked uh, to uh, the Fallon research poll. He, you know, that's a a Republican group in Columbus, and they released a poll that shows DeWine is leading Nan Whaley 49% to 37%. But Tim Ryan in the U.S. Senate race, the Democrat Tim Ryan is leading J.D. Vance 46 to 43%, which is a statistical dead heat, really. And they found in abortion that 46% of voters are likely to support abortion rights candidates, but a total of 48% said it either didn't matter to them, that was 23%, or will support anti-abortion candidates, that was 25%. Also, we've seen voter registration rates rise. There have been 133,000 new voter registrations since the June Dobbs decision came down, especially in counties that uh, President Biden won. Yeah, I can't wait to see how this plays out. I just I have a feeling there's a a big bubble of voters that really are quietly preparing to go to the polls and make themselves heard because of what happened with Dobbs. It's not a surprise that Mike DeWine, Mr. Abortion, anti-abortion himself, takes his abortion material off his website because they know with the majority of the voters, this is a loser. It's today in Ohio. Lake County made national news earlier this year when we learned someone had sought to tamper with the election software after hours. Since then, we've learned of attempts by election deniers to get access to election machines in several places nationwide, but we've heard nothing more about the Lake County tampering. Reporter Adam Faris went foraging to get some answers. Laura, what do we know? 
We have gotten so little information on this since it broke. So these details are really intriguing. Remember, we found out last November about that attempted data breach, which happened in May of 2021, the day of a special election, and someone used Lake County Commissioner John Hammercheck's security card. They swiped into the building, logged onto the county server with a non-county laptop in his office, and recorded county computer data. The Basically, all they got was information showing wireless printers linking up with each other. But screenshots of what was accessed ended up being displayed at a cyber symposium that MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell, a Trump supporter, had promised would demonstrate election fraud. So that's the backstory now. So now, thanks to Adam, we know two Lake County officials sought sensitive information about voting and tabulation machines shortly before and after that attempted data breach. One was the uh, recorder, Becky Lynch, and the second was Clerk of Courts, Faith Andrews. And they didn't get the information. Basically, the Board of Elections said that that information is tightly restricted and they weren't going to give it out. They didn't really think a lot of it until later. And Becky Lynch says that she found the manuals online anyway and sent them to members of the county's automatic data processing board. And but yeah, it's it's we still don't know why exactly they wanted these manuals about how the machines work. And so th- what do we have in Lake County? A bunch of elected election deniers? It's bizarre to me that elected officials that have nothing to do with the election are asking for those and then being very disparaging about not getting them. I mean, one of them right. attacked and said, wow, I'm a ranking elected public official and I can't get a record. Wowzer. And it's, hey, this is pretty important stuff. You shouldn't be disseminating it. And it has nothing to do with your job. No, nothing. I mean, the recorder has to do with recording property transactions, right? It has nothing to do with elections. So why are you asking for it? And they made these requests in a very nonchalant way. And then they were insulted that they didn't get it. But you have to give credit to the Board of Elections here. They're saying they didn't they, they wanted the manuals, they thought, because there's a lot of talk in circles about the fraud. They didn't think there was anything nefarious going on. But when you put all these little pieces together, it is a head scratcher going, well, what is the reasonable reason that you would have wanted these? And well, um, why is go ahead. why is this investigation taking so long to get to the bottom of? I mean, you got the digital fingerprints. You have the county commissioner's card being used to get into the office. Now, where is the resolution of this case? It's been months and months and months. Was there an assault on the Lake County election system by elected officials? I mean, that's a very good question. We we don't have any state um, elected officials commenting on it either, right? We don't have Yost. We don't have LaRose, the people who say that they're upholding the safety and the sanctity of our elections. LaRose, who sends out press releases saying, you know, here's four people who tried to vote from out of state is not saying, hey, this looks fishy. We're looking into it. Yeah, very questionable. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We often talk about waterfront access in Cleveland with the many steps being taken to let people enjoy our big natural assets. But you can't get to the waterfront if somebody puts a building in the way. What significant step is the City Planning Commission taking to deal with those obstacles, Layla? Well, yeah, today Cleveland has waterfront promenades only in these piecemeal 
sections along the east and west banks of the flats where property owners have installed them. And and they're really lovely, but they're very short and they sort of end abruptly. But Steve Litt tells us that the Cleveland City Planning Commission on Friday took this step that could change that in the future and create conditions for continuous waterfront promenades along the river. The Planning Commission voted to approve an amendment to language in the city's zoning code that would require new construction to be set back from a property line edging the river or any other water course. They're they're yet to define the areas that will be impacted by this or the distance of that setback, but the setback would preserve the opportunity for the city to negotiate an easement for public access and in theory for it to help a property owner fund and maintain a waterfront promenade and to maintain riverfront bulkheads. And Steve says that in 2018, the Planning Commission attempted to mandate a 10-foot riverfront setback along the East Bank, but it later discovered that the zoning code only allowed for mapping new setbacks in front yards facing streets, not the river or streams. So once they discovered that oversight, it forced the Planning Commission to rescind that vote a few weeks later. So this new zoning language still has to be approved by city council, but it's being heralded as a way to create economic value for both the property owners and for the city while ensuring that public access, uh, you know, that we all want for one of our really treasured natural resources. Yeah, this is a long, long term planning process. This is something you might not see come to fruition fully for a century, right? Because it has to affect every time somebody's doing something on the property. But unless you start, you never get there where it's kind of shocking. We have this great river and you really can't walk along it. You can paddle along it, but you can't walk along. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, as you said, like how many buildings are already in the way? You know, are we, you know, are we, this kind of takes us forward, you know, moving forward, they would have to be thoughtful in how they plan. But do we already have a lot of structures that are standing in the way of, yes, of that of kind of industrial, a lot of, yeah. other, you know, existing industries. So do we have to wait until those crumble job. into oblivion? Like, like, is it Lindy's Lake House? Is that the name of the restaurant still right now? Like it's built right up on the water, which is lovely if you're eating there. But if you're trying to walk from that East Bank promenade, it stops right there, right? So you can only get so far and then you have to go back to the street. So I, I do salute them. But yeah, you're like, some of this development is not very old. I wish we had thought, thought it through when they were developing the East Bank of the Flats you know, 10 years ago. Right. Right. But you have to start sometime. We, we, we are where we're at. You can't go back in time. You can only look forward. And by putting this plan in, it starts to change it. So your grandchildren might get to walk along the river someday. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Content Marketing World was the vision of a Clevelander to build an international event around the topic, and it has been successful beyond imagination, putting Cleveland on the map each year for the gathering. Lisa, why is it moving next year to Washington, D.C.? It's been such a Cleveland success story. 
Yeah, this story kind of bummed me out. But, you know, event general manager Stephanie Stahl says that uh, they're moving it to Washington, D.C. for 2023 because they want a fresh perspective for their attendees. So make of that what you will. But, you know, this thing started in Cleveland. A guy named Joe Polizzi established the Content Marketing Institute in 2010. The very first year, he reserved a room at the Cleveland Renaissance Hotel for 125 people. Well, 600 people from 25 countries showed up, you know, and then it's been in Cleveland ever since then with increasing, you know, they just wrapped it up last weekend. They had about 2,000 attendees. They draw a lot of celebrity speakers like, you know, William Shatner, Tina Fey, and, uh, but they say they're moving to Washington. But Stahl says DC will not be a permanent host, but they haven't planned beyond next year. And they say Cleveland, quote, could be a host in the future. I just, I just really, because really this event made Cleveland the epicenter of content marketing, you know, which is a big deal. And I love that some of the attendees were actually sad. They're like, oh, we liked Cleveland. We were used to Cleveland. I saw Mindy Kaling there a couple of years ago, and I was really impressed by the number of people and the quality and the caliber of people they got. And I talked to one woman who was from Australia, and I have to say she was ready for it to move out of Cleveland, but she was coming from Australia to Cleveland every year. Yeah, that's pretty neat. What I, I what I wonder is if the uh, the pandemic kind of broke the rhythm because it had been building oh. and building and building. It was more successful every year. The pandemic hits, it becomes virtual, and I wonder that they just can't get the mojo back. That could be it because they did go virtual for two years because of the pandemic. But also uh, the Content Marketing Institute was bought by Informa back in 2016 for $17.5 million. And that group is headquartered in UK, although they do have a Cleveland working contingent. Maybe it's because they weren't happy with the Global Center. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we need to spend $50 million on the MedMart. You are listening to Today in Ohio. What Cleveland centenarian holds the Guinness World Record of oldest practicing doctor and what's his story? Laura Gretchen Crone wrote a delightful story about this guy. It was a must read over the weekend. Absolutely. I am such a fan of the story. Each little nugget was just pure gold and better than the last. I mean, you just kept finding out all of these fascinating facts about Dr. Howard Tucker. He's a neurologist, a World War II Navy veteran from Cleveland Heights, practicing medicine since 1947. By the way, holds a second degree in law, which he got in his 60s. He was once airlifted off a mountaintop in the Alps. He survived COVID and a broken neck. And uh, yeah, he still sees patients twice a week at St. Vincent Charity Medical Center. Also an emerging TikTok star, apparently on TikTok where he has like a million followers. He has thrown a baseball, given dating advice to Leonardo DiCaprio, and tried a burrito for the first time. And I mean, I I don't even understand TikTok. And this 100-year-old is doing it. Also, there's a documentary, a full-length feature documentary being made about him and his life. What was interesting was the law degree because he got it when he was 67, 67 yeah. and and he had read that the oldest person in Ohio to pass the bar was, I think, five years younger. And so now they have to go and look and see, is he the, does he have the record for the oldest person to pass the bar? I mean, that would be, Lisa, like you going back to law school tomorrow. <laughs> Any plans? While doing no. everything else that this guy does, right? Yeah, he sees patients two days a week. Right. He's he still but drives, right? He's 
snuck out of the house to go to the hospital during COVID-19. He was 98 years old and he was like, well, I got to see patients. So, I mean, he exercises two miles a day on the treadmill or stationary bike four times a week. Apparently, he cut that down recently. Um, he puts on his bow tie and, yeah, still pulls all-nighters to prepare medical lectures for students. So I am in awe of Dr. Tucker. He sounds fantastic. And on his last birthday, he received letters of congratulations from five of the six living U.S. presidents, from the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and a personal serenade from Dolly Parton. Well, he doesn't do it all with a toddler, so I'm not that impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't know how we missed this guy all these years. Credit to Gretchen for putting it together, and she just wrote it beautifully. It, the guy comes to life in her, her prose. I st- I'm just struck by the fact he went and got a law degree, and 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 he uses it because he's an expert witness for trials. So that's what he does in his spare time is he reads legal briefs and medical cases to help uh, lawyers prepare for trial. So he needed that law degree in the end. Good stuff. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Going to go short today. We went long Friday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. Take the extra time. Go to cleveland.com. Read Cleveland's Promise. I guarantee you, you'll find it rewarding. 